0: The series on the church this morning we've been looking at this series on the church for the last five weeks now and we've been calling it the church our church and so we're going to take everything we've learned these past four weeks and sort of dive right into what we do based on all of that um, but as you know today is Father's Day and at the beginning I like, I like to break the ice so I'm going to read some some dad jokes <laughs> and you know how I give you a golf clap For coming here at 10 o'clock, you deserve a golf clap if you simply don't break and never laugh at any of these, okay? Try not to laugh, okay? Just a few dad jokes today. Maybe your dad has told you a few of these. Did you hear about the restaurant on the moon? Great food, no atmosphere. You're out. What do you call a fake noodle? An impasta. Okay, good job. How many apples grow on a tree? All of them. Want to hear a joke about paper? Never mind, it's terrible. You're definitely out. Why did the coffee file a police report? It got mugged. How does a penguin build its house? It glues it together. You're out. What do you call a Mexican who has lost his car? Carlos. I had to say it that way because Carlos makes no sense. Why did the scarecrow win an award? Because he, is, he was outstanding in his field. These are bad. Why don't skeletons ever go trick-or-treating? Because they have no body to go with. Uh, what do you call an elephant that doesn't matter? An irrelevant. Irrelevant, I should say. Want to hear a joke about construction? I'm still working on it. What do you call cheese that isn't yours? Someone should know this one. Nacho cheese. Good job. Why couldn't the bicycle stand up by itself? I should just ask you for the answers. You guys have heard all these? It was too tired. I need to tell more of these then. I didn't know some of these. The graveyard looks overcrowded. People must be dying to get in there. Five fourths of people admit that they're bad with fractions. What do you call a fat psychic? A four-chin teller. <laughs> hey, you're all gone on that one. That one made me laugh, too, so I'm out. <laughs> oh, man. I've never gone to a gun rage before. I decided to give it a shot. Yeah. I like this one, too. Why do you never see elephants hiding in trees? Because they're so good at it. have heard that one before? Did you hear about the kidnapping at school? It's fine. He woke up. Did I tell you the time I fell in love during a backflip? I was heels overhead. In the last one, I don't play soccer because I enjoy the sport. I'm doing it just for kicks. Dad jokes. No, laugh now. You can laugh now. These are funny, right? In their own cheesy dad-like way. Happy Father's Day to everyone out there. I hope it's a great day for you. Thanks for your influence in your children and grandchildren's life as my, as my dad said. I want to thank my own dad for his influence. It's, it's really special for me and my dad to be here at Wyoming Valley Church together. Not for the reason you think. Because I always dreamt about being my dad's boss someday. <laughs> and now I can get him. I'm just teasing. Thank you, Dad, for your influence, not only to myself, but my grandchildren and our church as well. It's just a blessing that you're here. It's also a special day in a different way. Does anyone want to know what's happened one year ago this very day? <laughs> <laughs> Say it again. I became your pastor one year ago today. Does anyone remember that? Well, I wasn't hoping for the round of applause, but thank you. Uh, I, I'm just glad to know we didn't break this thing yet, Right. Praise the Lord for that. No, it's a special day. It's really a special day in every way you look at it. So we're going to look at the church today, and we're going to finish our five-week study on the church. And today we're going to look at B church. We've talked about what church. We talked about why church. We talked about who church. And last week we talked about how church. And today we're going to, like I said, kind of wrap everything together and talk about what we can do based on that This isn't more for comedy, more I just want to use this as an illustration. Did you ever do something that took far more effort and focus than you first imagined? What's that? Someone have an answer? Your last trip, Paul? All the time. All the time. Everything does, right? Did you ever do something that took far more effort and focus than you imagined? Well, my illustration fitting today is being a father. Several of you people have heard my story. We became a father, I became a father in 2012. We had our first child, Haddon. And man, I don't, I, if you remember the first time you become a parent, everything changes. Everything's hard, right? You don't really know what to expect. You think you're going to be a great parent, and then you actually become a parent, and everything is just very, very difficult. You're not sleeping. You don't have any sanity, right? You think, how am I going to make it through this? And that's kind of how the early days were for me as a father. I just thought, I, I'm really bad at this. I'm not going to be good at this. this. I wanted a big family, and now I'm questioning that going, I shouldn't do this anymore. <laughs> But you know, I mean, the months go on, the baby starts sleeping a little bit more. Not great, but uh, you start to get your bearings a little bit. And it was probably a year and a half after that that Janine and I started to long for another child, thinking, you know, we're pretty good at this now. We're getting into a groove. You know, one kid is no problem, (laughs) right? We thought all those things, didn't we? Not at all. But uh, after about a year and a half, we wanted another child, and so God blessed us. We got pregnant, and actually, maybe you guys don't know some of this part of the story, but we actually got pregnant in August of 2013 and actually miscarried really early on. And we wanted to be parents again, and after that we really wanted to be parents again, so uh, thank the Lord, only a month later we found out we were pregnant again. And by this time I was ready for kid number two, I was like, yes, kid number two is going to be great, you know, I can't wait to have child number two. Many of you know the rest of the story, we went to the ultrasound. And when you find out you're having a kid, it's even if you want the kid, it's a little terrifying, right? To think I'm going to be another parent, a new parent, once again. But they give you nine months to prepare, right? Nine months to get your bearings and get all set up for that next kid to come. Well, we went to this ultrasound, and a couple things happened. We found out that day we weren't going to have one kid in nine months. We were going to have two kids in nine months. And that blew my mind blew my mind i couldn't imagine that i was going to be a father of twins go from one kid to three kids but not only that the doctor told us that because you have twins they often come early so instead of having one kid in nine months we were going to have fast forward a little bit two kids in seven months and we went from having one son to three sons in a matter of seven months and then once again i didn't feel like a very good father when those days came i felt like everything was brand new once again our life changed completely And it definitely answers the question that it took a lot more effort and focus than I ever first imagined to be a father. And even to this day, it does. Even to this day. Being a father is not what I imagined, although it's very, very good and very, very rewarding. It also takes a lot of work, right? That's kind of why we celebrate fathers and mothers, because we know it takes a lot of work. And if you haven't been a father or mother, and one day you will be, you will understand. Going, wow, thank you, Mom and Dad, for everything you've done for me. So I hope you spoil your dad today if he is in your life. I hope it's a great day for all you dads out there. I want to take your attention now and go to Ephesians chapter 4. And I want to read the first 16 verses. It's going to be on the screen or you can follow along in your own Bible. And I want you to listen to what the Apostle Paul says regarding the church and regarding the Christian life. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Listen to that again. the shepherds and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. And I want you to pay attention to this next part. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, Verse 15, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up into every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. We're going to talk about B church today. Maybe even if you looked at that passage, you can tell that that's a high bar that Paul is saying. This is the Christian life. And today we're going to use sort of a metaphor, an illustration, an analogy for the Christian life because the little subheading there under B-Church is climbing to the summit of Christianity. That's the goal today, is to not only learn what the summit of Christianity is, but to be inspired and encouraged to go to the top of that. And we're going to start right at the beginning here. What is the summit of Christianity? I put a picture of Mount Everest up there. Mount Everest is going to be our parallel today, our analogy today. Mount Everest has been in the news recently. Does anyone know why? Has anyone seen the reports? There are actually so many people trying to scale the summit of Mount Everest that it's actually getting problematic. They have a what's called a, uh, a traffic jam, if you will, on the way up to the mountain. And some inexperienced climbers are actually making it problematic for those who are experienced because they don't have enough oxygen to get to the top. And so, it's been in the news recently, and I thought about this as an illustration for today, as an analogy for today, because I do believe we are trying to scale, trying to climb to the summit of Christianity, and that summit is very clear in God's word. The summit of Christianity is being perfectly like and perfectly pleasing to our Lord Jesus. I'll say it again. The summit of Christianity is being perfectly like and perfectly pleasing to our Lord Jesus. And the word perfectly is in there twice on purpose because it's in Scripture. And I want to show you that. In 1 Peter 1, verse 15, the apostle Peter says, Therefore, be holy as God is holy. Do you notice that? Do you notice that bar? Be holy as God is holy. Jesus reiterates it again in Matthew 5, verse 48. He says, therefore, you must be perfect even as your heavenly Father is perfect. Have you ever heard that before? that the summit of Christianity, the summit of where we're going, is actually perfection, holiness, Christ-likeness. Now, we could all reason with us today going, well, we're never going to be that. This is ridiculous. None of, none of us are going to reach perfection. None of us are going to reach that summit. And yet it's in God's word. And I wonder why God puts such a high bar into the Christian life. If, you're, if you understand how things work um, in life, generally, when whatever we strive for, Uh, We often fall short of what we want. So if the bar is high, we might fall short of that bar. But if we brought the bar down low or lower or lower or lower, we would probably even fall short of that. And what I believe God wants us to do is set the bar exactly where he wants us to try to get to, which is perfect holiness and perfect Christ-likeness. Because he knows if we make that our bar, although we probably will fall short of that and we're going to need Christ's blood every step of the way for forgiveness, We would be much more like our Lord Jesus than we did if we set that bar much lower. Does that make sense? So that's why it says in 1 Peter 1:15, be holy, as God is holy. And Matthew 5.48 says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Is that a big mountain? Is that a big mountain to climb? I mean, look at Mount Everest. 29,029 feet. It is the glory for every mountain climber and every adventurer to get to the top of Everest, to have that on your resume to say I climbed the tallest mountain, I scaled the highest summit and in Christianity we have a very high summit, a very big mountain that we must scale and it is Christ-likeness or as Peter, excuse me, as Paul called it full maturity in Christ. So we're going to use Mount Everest today as our illustration as our analogy. And this kind of just worked out this way, because I was thinking about taking something like that as an illustration, and I thought, I don't know, should I do something like that? And as I looked into Mount Everest and did a little bit of research on it, I realized that there were seven points along the way. And I looked back at my sermon and realized that I had seven points in my sermon. So what I'm going to actually do is I'm going to link all seven points in my text today with the seven points of Mount Everest. And you're going to see along the way that the parallel we're going to make. Have you guys ever read the book, Pilgrim's Progress? Pilgrim's Progress is an old book, probably from the, I don't know, 15, 1600, something like that. and 1700s, thank you. And along the way, this man Christian has to journey somewhere. He has to try to get to the celestial city, which is a a term for heaven. And along the way, he's finding obstacles and deception and people who want to trick him and distract him from that journey. And we all know that's from the devil. But along the way, he has to continue to progress, to reach the summit. I want you to listen to this passage from Second um, Corinthians 5, verses 6 to 10. Listen to what Paul says. He says, For we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Verse 9 says, So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And I said today, Mount Everest is going to be our metaphor today. I'm going to take you through the seven points, the seven stops along the way of climbing the summit of Mount Everest. This is probably the closest any of us will ever get, right, to Mount Everest. I had to do a little bit of research because I didn't know a lot about Mount Everest. It's just something you hear about in media from time to time. So it was quite intriguing when I started to look into this, and uh, you're going to learn a little bit about Mount Everest, but of course it's an illustration for something much, much deeper. When you start your journey in Mount Everest, it actually starts months before you actually get to what's called base camp. Because as you might expect, climbing Mount Everest takes a lot of planning, doesn't it? You don't just decide on a whim, hey, today I think I'll climb Everest. I got nothing to do today. Let's go climb Mount Everest. No, it takes a lot of planning, months, and maybe even years before that to decide, I'm going to try this. And it looks like it takes a lot of money, too. It looks like it takes sixty dollars to $70,000 to try to make this trek up Mount Everest. That's a lot of money, right? And it's a lot of planning. But the first thing, if you decide to climb Mount Everest, is you get to either Nepal or Tibet, and you get to one of their base camps. And that's really where you've committed yourself to Mount Everest and said, okay, I'm going to do this. You get to base camp and you're there with all the other climbers that are ready and willing to climb Mount Everest. And I want to read a description of what it says about base camp at Mount Everest. Listen to what it says. Base camp is like a Formula One car racing depot. Satellite phones buzz in international tents as the world's languages mix in thrilling accounts of the latest. (coughs) Journalists, families, and climbers exchange news and emotions between the mountain and the world, for no alpine peak fires imagination like Mount Everest. Base camp is a place of hope, fear, frustration, conflicts, and lifelong friendships. Some climbers will experience their dream fulfilled. Others will have to return home with an unfinished task. You look around you and you try to guess, but only destiny will know which fate is to be yours. So base camp is where you start your journey in the climb up Mount Everest. And you're there with several, maybe dozens, maybe hundreds of other climbers. And there's a base camp in Christianity too. There's a base camp in Christianity. In fact, we already went over it when we talked about Who Church. If you remember that a couple weeks ago, we talked about Who Church. In order to scale to the summit of Christianity, you have to start at base camp. And base camp for the Christian is simple. It's faith in Christ. Faith in Christ is where you start and it's where you end your journey on the summit climb to Christianity. Jesus said in John fourteen six, a classic passage, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Every single person who wants to scale this mountain in Christianity must come through Jesus. There is no other way. There is no back entrance. There is no side door. You come through Christ or you don't come at all. And we want to stress that here at Wyoming Valley Church, that if you want to be a part of God's biggest, greatest institution, the church, you have to come through Jesus. And two weeks ago we talked about five things that define the person that has faith in Christ. And the first one we said was being born again. You have to be born again to have faith in Christ. You have to have an experience of God's saving work in your soul. Because God does all the saving work, doesn't he? From start to finish. And you have to understand that by turning to Christ and experiencing God's power and love in your life. And it's a term that the scripture calls born again. It's like a brand new life. It's like a brand new start. It's like a brand new person. You start brand new in the Christian life. All your sins are forgiven. You start with new hearts, a new mind. A lot of people use the term brainwashed for Christians, right? It's actually not a horrible term if you think about it. We're brainwashed, we're heartwashed, we're soulwashed, we're everything washed, right? Everything is cleansed and we start fresh. And you have to have this idea of born again if you follow Jesus Christ because God must do this work. There's nothing you and I can do to save ourselves. We must have God come upon us. The second thing we have to do, and this is where our role enters in, is belief and repentance. We have to turn to Jesus. We have to recognize that we've been wrong. We have to recognize that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And then we must turn to Jesus. And every mountain climber has to let some things go, right? If you're going to make a journey up Mount Everest, you're going to let, besides $70,000, you're going to let some things go. You're going to let time with your family go. Probably your job go. If you're going to make a trek up Mount Everest, you have to let some things go. And the Christian journey is very much the same. Although the thing we let go when we turn to Christ is our sin, and ourself, and the world. And when we turn to Christ, we commit to him and say, I'm yours, Christ. The next thing, a part of faith in Christ, is baptism. Baptism, as we talked about it a couple weeks ago, is sort of your vows of allegiance to Christ, to say, I'm yours. You're mine. I will follow you, Jesus. I will follow you into baptism. I will follow you every step along the path. And that's the next one, devotion. Devotion. Devotion, where you say to the Lord Jesus, I'm yours no matter what, Lord. Not only do I make a vow to you today, I'm going to follow that vow with devotion. Is that something you've said to the Lord? Have you said to him, I'm yours no matter what? Wherever this takes me, Lord, whatever this means, Lord, what, no matter where you go, Lord, I will follow you. The last thing that's part of faith in Christ is God's power, God's protection, and God's instruction. Because along the way, we're going to need some really profound tools to get to the summit of Christianity, aren't we? And every mountain climber has tools. They have pickaxe. They have something called crampons. They have goggles. They have a mask. They have oxygen tanks. They have harnesses, food, gloves, etc., etc., etc. Because without those tools, is anyone going to climb to the summit of Christianity? Excuse me, the summit of Everest? No, they're not. They must have these profound tools of climbing. And you and I, if we're going to scale the summit of Christianity, must have God's power, God's protection, and God's instruction. So have you come to base camp yet? Have you come to base camp? Have you come to faith in Christ and said to God, I'm ready, I'm going, whatever it means, whatever it takes, I want to be a part of you, Christ. I want to be a part of your church, Lord, Wherever you go, I want to follow. And if you do, it's that simple. You turn to Christ and he saves you. He brings you into the church and he sets you there at base camp. And right after base camp, I don't know if this happens in Mount Everest, but it does happen in Christianity. I have read about base camp that there's a lot of excitement when you get to base camp. As you might imagine, there's a lot of adrenaline. Although there's terror looking at the mountain, you're really filled with a lot of adrenaline and energy to say, I'm going to climb Mount Everest today. And I think that also happens in the Christian life. There's kind of what we have, what's called a honeymoon period in the Christian journey where you make some grand gestures to God, some grand declarations to God because he saved you, you want to be a part of this, you want your sins forgiven, you want to go to heaven, you believe God has saved you. And we all know what that's like, right, in our relationships, unfortunately. There's a period that's called the honeymoon period where everything is great. Everything is rosy. And that period can last a few weeks, it can last a half a year, it can last up to a year or maybe even longer than that. But after that, sometimes, unfortunately, the love starts to wane. The path starts to get hard. And I've actually seen it in my ministry. Some people don't make it. Some people abandon during that period and say, oh, it's harder than I thought. It's more difficult than I imagined. And they actually go back to the world. And I think the devil has a play in that too because the honeymoon period really is supposed to be the entire course of Christianity. We're never supposed to wane in our love for Christ. He never wanes in his love for us. He always loves us at the peak, and we are always to love him at the peak. But once it gets hard, we kind of focus on that, right? We kind of focus on the difficulty, and we lose sight of the love. Well, the next stop along the way in your climb to Mount Everest is what's called Icefall. Icefall. Before you actually get to the next camp, there's this thing called Icefall. I'm going to read a little bit of a description of Icefall. This is the second hurdle along the way of scaling Mount Everest. It says, this place is similar to a huge horror chamber at an amusement park, only this one is for real. There are countless scary things that can happen along the way. A crevasse might open underneath you. An ice pinnacle can fall on top of you. The entire area can collapse. It's simply not a place for a picnic, and most of us just concentrate on getting out of there as, as soon as we possibly can. Is there, Are the slides working? Uh, okay, that's it. That's it, actually. I don't have the names of the, mount, the mounts up there, but Mount Everest has this thing called icefall. And you see the picture of the guy trying to scale across this skinny ladder, right? And it's quite a treacherous place to be because you could fall into this crevasse that could be, you know, feet deep and never get out. You can have ice fall on top of you. It's quite a treacherous place to be. And as I thought about this along the way of Christianity, the first thing you sort of encounter when you follow Christ is Satan's perversions. Satan loves to pervert things. He loves to have an initial attack against the new found Christian. These are things that the devil might tell you along the way as you sort of (coughs) decide to commit yourself to Christ because you're now on his radar. Listen to what he might say to you. You can't do this. It's too hard. It's too difficult. How are you going to get to this destination? It's not going to be as good as you think. Come back to the world. It's too lonely. It's too costly it demands too much of you. You won't have any joy in doing this. Come back to the pleasures of the world. It's not going to be joyful. Maybe, God, maybe the devil says this. God is going to abandon you at some point along the journey. You're going to need God. You're going to turn to God and he won't be there for you. He's going to abandon you. He tells us lie after lie after lie. The devil also tells us perversions about what the path is and what the goal actually is — and this is the one we've been talking about for the last five weeks — is there's been a misunderstanding about God's church in our culture. There's been a misunderstanding about what the church is. There's been a misunderstanding about why the church is. There's a misunderstanding about who makes up the church. There's a misunderstanding of how the church works, and there's a misunderstanding that we actually need to be the church. And that's why we've gone over this five-week study to clear up that confusion. And if you've missed any of those lessons, I encourage you to go back and listen and understand what God says about his church, because it's often very different than the world tells us. And that's one of Satan's perversions. If he can tell us the church is different, then we start off bent. We start off on a wrong direction. And any journey that you begin, if you start off in the wrong direction, are you going to get to the destination? You're not going to. You're already starting crooked. And that's the devil. He loves to do that right at the beginning, is to say... Lies, perversions to us. and hopefully we'll believe those things and we'll go off some beaten path. But the first stop along the way in Mount Everest is what's called icefall. And the first stop along the way is weathering Satan's perversions and learning and listening to God and making God your one true authority. Because the devil will pervert anything he can in the Christian life to get you off his course, off your course. You still might be doing church, but is it the proper? Church? Is it the church that Christ describes? Is it the church that God has put all of his power and all of his love into for generations? Or are we simply plain church? But if you can weather the perversions of of the devil, you can get to what's called camp number one. Camp number one, according to Mount Everest, is what's called the Valley of Silence. The Valley of Silence. Again, I'll read a description of the Valley of Silence. It says this is a vast, Flat area of endless snow, deep crevasses and mountain walls, frequently washed by avalanches. Here we set up camp number one. At night we listen to the deep murmuring cracking sounds underneath our tents. It is the crevasses opening and closing deep down in the glacier beneath. You keep your fingers crossed that it won't happen right under your tent, at least not now, while you are in it. Pounding headaches torture you. But it is here that for the first time, just a few steps around the corner, we gain the first close sight of Mount Everest. The first camp along the way in Mount Everest is what's called Valley of Silence. In the Christian life, that's what I'm going to call the first test. The first test. The first test in the Christian life, if you make it to base camp, if you move beyond base camp and weather the perversions of the devil, you come to what I call the first test, which is discipline. Discipline to follow the Lord to the end. This is where the climb gets real. This is where the climb begins to hurt a little bit. It becomes a little bit difficult when you have to learn how to discipline yourself to walk with the Lord, to make time in his word, to make time in prayer, to make time to gather with the church. Because at the initial period, like I said before, it's often like a honeymoon period. God is telling you all the great things. You're listening to all the great things about Christianity. And maybe or maybe not, you don't understand the cost of it. But as soon as you get into it and there's a little bit of heart, uh, head work and and, uh, body work, it starts to hurt a little bit. And you start to have to learn how to discipline yourself to follow the Lord. And every single Christian knows what that's like. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians. Chapter 9, verses 24 to 27. Paul was a master of illustrations. He often used... Worldly, bodily illustrations to illustrate the Christian life. And I want you to listen to what he says in 1 Corinthians 9, 24-27. Listen to what he says. Paul says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not beat I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Do you see the discipline there? Do you see the discipline that Paul had to make to follow the Lord? He said, I'd make my body my slave. My body doesn't tell me when I'm hungry, my body doesn't tell me when I'm tired. I tell my body what's right and what's wrong. I have learned to discipline myself to follow the Lord and every Christian has to learn that. We live in a day and age and I've seen these things actually. They come out now with a two-minute devotional while you brush your teeth. Two minutes while you're brushing your teeth. You can call that your devotions to the Lord. While you're spitting and rinsing, you can take a little bit of nugget of truth and that could be it for the day. Is that discipline? It's not. Every mountain climber knows what discipline is. Every mountain climber, certainly those who go to Mount Everest, know what it's like to discipline themselves. Are we those in the Christian life who know what it takes to have discipline in our lives? To sit before the Lord, to maybe turn things off that might be distractions to us, and say to the Lord, Lord, you have my undivided attention. Teach me, guide me, show me the way to go. I had to learn this when I first got to college. I sailed through high school. High school was no problem. But when I got to college, it was a little bit harder, right? Anybody remember that period? A lot more reading. Luke, you have been there? A lot more reading. The tests were harder. You know, the teachers stopped holding your hands so much, and they just expect you to read this thing called the syllabus. I shouldn't have thrown that away day one. But you have to learn how to discipline yourself in college. You have to learn how to read. You have to learn how to study. You have to learn how to buckle down. And if you don't, you're not going to do well but the Christian life much more so. I want to read another passage from 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 7-10. to Paul is now guiding Timothy, young Timothy, as he's going to sort of take over Paul's role as Paul is at the end of his life. And listen to what he says. He says to Timothy, Have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to, this we, for to this end we toil and strive because we have set our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially to those who believe. <laughs> Do you see what he says there? Train yourself for godliness. I don't think anyone falls into godliness. I don't think anyone trips into godliness. I think godliness has to be, str- has to be fought for and striven for. I think you have to take hold of it. I think every single Christian has to learn how to discipline themselves before the Lord. Even Paul had to, and Paul had to train Timothy to do that very thing, and that's sort of camp number one it's the first test. Now that you've reached base camp, now that you've weathered the perversions and you're going the right way, are you willing and ready to discipline yourself in order to follow the Lord? Because this will matter as you make your way up the mountain. If you can get to that, if you can get to disciplining yourself to the Lord, you can make it to camp number two. Camp number two on your way up Mount Everest is called—actually, it has no name. This one has no name for some reason. It's just camp number two, and I'm going to read the description of what it says about camp number two. After an endless, slow march through the silent valley, you reach at last a rocky patch at the foot of the icy Lhotse wall. This marks camp number two. This place is absolutely stunning. Clouds roll in from the lower ranges of the Himalayas, up the valley, and into the camp. While acclimatizing, we spend time looking for cool old climbing gear, left here by all of Everest's climbing history. This is also the last chance to get a, dis- a decent, prepared meal. We eat all that we are handed because soon we'll be surviving on what's called instance only, as in instant meals. So eat as much as you can. Camp number two along the way. You've made it past base camp. You've made it past ice fall. And now you've come to camp number two. And camp number two in the Christian circle is what I'm calling the nitty-gritty. If you can discipline yourself, you can come to camp number two. And this is where we begin to learn from the Lord what it means to actually obey. What it means to actually do what he has called us to do. Because discipline is a means, right? Discipline is not an end. I used to think in my younger days that discipline was the end. That if I simply read the word of God, I checked it off and I went about my day, right? God's happy, I'm happy, I spent 20 minutes with him, the rest of the day is mine. But discipline is not an end. Discipline is a means to an end. The end is obedience. And God's word has taught us that over and over, right? In James it says, be not hearers of the word only, but doers. God says, Christ says in Matthew chapter 7, those who listen to the words of mine and obey them are those who build their house upon the rock. Those who listen to my words and do not obey them are those who build their house upon the sand. Camp number two in the Christian life is the nitty-gritty. This is where we learn from the Lord what it means to obey. And this is a special time because God is now specially training us for the task, for the goal. God is coming alongside of this. If you ever had a parent or a tutor or a friend teach you specially, show you something, it's a very special thing because they're taking the time to teach you and to train you to do something that you otherwise wouldn't be able to do. And Christ does this in a very special manner. He comes alongside of us and says, Here, child, now that you've committed yourself to this, I'm going to show you what it looks like to obey me. And he gives us these two grand commandments. The two greatest commandments in Scripture, as you well know by now, is number one, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and strength. And you know what that translation is basically saying? Love the Lord your God with everything, with everything, with everything, and with everything. Because all your heart is all of you. All your mind and all your soul is all of you. And all your strength is all of you. And the Lord says it's going to take all of you. You're going to have to love me with everything you have. And that's kind of how we started off the sermon, by saying, have you ever had to do something that originally didn't seem like a big deal? And once you got into it, you realize, wow, this takes a lot of focus and a lot of strength. And the second commandment is much like it, he said. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. The Lord gives you these special nuggets of truth and says to the Christian, this means everything. This is what it's all about. This right here is exactly why I've brought you here is so that you can love the Lord and you can love your neighbor. Inside your little bulletin, I gave you a little bit of an insert. It's an insert we've actually used before. But this insert, hopefully, is a very big help to you. What it is, is we took God's commandments, as it says in Scripture, and we started by showing you the two greatest commandments. The two greatest commandments in God's Scripture are what we just mentioned. Uh, in the Old Testament, in two different places, we hear about the Ten Commandments. God gives us ten commandments there in the Old Testament. And a lot of people have trouble understanding what those ten commandments are actually supposed to be. And you know what really what they are? It's a further explanation of the two greatest commandments. It's not different. It's a further unraveling of love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as you love yourself. In the New Testament, you find a whole bunch of commandments. They're all over the place. And we put them on your sheet called the Better Ten Commandments because... I think the Ten Commandments, when you look at them, you can kind of look them look at them in a defensive sort of way. Thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. If I just avoid things, I'm godly. But if you look into the New Testament, it says things like this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Number two, I appeal to you, therefore, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. So what we did on the sheet for you is we took the Ten Commandments, the old Ten Commandments, And we lined them up right next to the parallel version of the New Testament version of those commandments. And what I want you to see from this is that the Ten Commandments have always been about love. God's commandments from start to finish have always been about offensive, purposeful, advancing kind of love. That you can invest your life into those around you and make them better. You can give yourself to your Lord and you can glorify his name. And that's exactly what God wants to draw with these commandments. He's saying to us today, if we're at camp number two, this is the key. This is the secret. This is the pathway to the prize, love. Purposeful, on the offense, love. In 1 Corinthians 13, another classic passage, the Apostle Paul tells us that nothing is accomplished if we don't practice love. That everything is useless if we don't walk in love. The church really, if you could sum it up in one word, should be love. Love the Lord and love your neighbor. It's not about a service. It's not about a building. It's not about just a place you go to or something you are involved in. It is about love. And camp number two is where the Lord begins to unravel these things and say to you, get active, get moving, get investing in love because it's all about love. Have you learned the commandments? Are you learning Christ's commandments? Have you come to camp number two yet? If we're not walking in love, you know what we're doing? We're going nowhere. We're spinning our wheels. We're not actually advancing to the top of anything. If we're not walking in love, what actually are we accomplishing? Because it's always been about love. If we can understand that, if we can understand how important love is, we can come to camp number three. In Mount Everest, camp number three is simply called Lot's Wall. Here's a description of Lot's Wall. He said Imagine sliding down a fun, icy slope on a sunny winter's day. Only this one is 1,200 meters or 4,000 feet high. This is not a place to play around. The dangerous part is to hang onto a rope of dubious strength and to change carabiners between the ropes. You might feel not too clear in your head at this moment, especially upon coming down, but it's crucial to concentrate. One slip and you are gone, far higher up than you had originally intended, really. The camp here is a true eagle's nest placed right out of the wall. Going to the toilet at night is a tedious task, To dress and secure oneself. In addition, just to find a spot for it on this narrow platform is tricky enough. But the view is grand. And by now, you are well on your way to the summit. If you make it to camp number three in Everest, you're pretty well committed. You're pretty well committed on this path of getting to the top of Everest. Well, the camp number three in the Christian life is what we're going to call uh, the catalyst. The catalyst. And what I'm going to talk about here in a moment is simply the church. We've been talking about it for the last five weeks. If you can have faith in Christ, if you can weather the perversions of the devil, if you can learn to discipline yourself and learn the commandments of God, you know what you need at that point? You need others. You need people. You need God's church. This is the catalyst to actually scaling a very, very difficult part of the Christian life. Because once you realize the cost, once you realize the goal, once you realize what God is expecting of you, you now have to have people to help you. And that's exactly why he gave you the church. So that you and I can know what it's like to walk arm in arm, hand in hand, with those we love and those who love us. And every mountain climber knows what it's like, how much easier it is to have someone next to you. To have someone helping you, either physically saying, go, I'm, I'm going to move you up, you've got to keep going, or say to you mentally, push, keep going, you can make it, you can go a little further. Every mountain climber, every adventurer knows what it's like to have someone... To help them go that way and here with the church we must have one another's back we must be unified and committed to Christ's church because I'm going to say it this strongly this boldly this is going to make or break our success even if you want to go up the summit even if you understand the right way to go even if you understand Christ's commandments and you want to obey them nobody nobody can do it properly without the church do you know that if we don't have the church, we don't get to the top. And God knows that. That's why he made it that way. So we will depend upon one another. Because obey the commandments, walk in holiness, stay faithful. We're going to need help to do that, aren't we? I'm going to need help. You're going to need help. We're going to need the church. And that's why we continue to stress what we call church family time on Wednesdays. Because this is good. We're training and teaching. We're giving you things to, to use in the Christian journey. But on Wednesdays, we really get into each other's lives. We really get to know one another, and we really get to learn what it takes to walk the Christian journey. And I would, if you haven't by this point, really encourage you to invest in the church and that church family time. Because the church is the catalyst to us making it to the top, to us scaling that wall and getting over to the other side. Camp number three is Lote's Wall for Everest. Camp number three for us is called the Catalyst, the church. Camp number four is the final camp in Mount Everest. This one is simply called Death Zone. Cheery, right? On Mount Everest, you come to camp number four, and it's called Death Zone. And here's a description of Death Zone. Camp number four sits on a plateau resembling a moonscape. You are at the edge of the atmosphere, and the sky owns a strange dark blue color. It is surely the closest you can get to space on Earth. Only a small climb above camp, you look down. And see the Tibetan plateau with its vast brown plains, white glaciers, and the other alpine giants. I'm going to try to say these names. Can can Gentakuna, Lotz, Makalua in the distance. It's all magical and surreal. Yet this is the only place where the media, fame, and fun definitely are gone. Only fear remains on everyone's face. People don't talk a lot at Death Zone. Resting in your tent, feeling weak already, you try to get some sleep at night. As night falls outside... In a couple of hours, you will start to put on your gear for the final part of the adventure, the summit push. Camp 4 in Mount Everest is called Death Zone. It's not as grave in the Christian circle, or maybe it is. I'm going to call it the final attack. The final attack in the Christian life is actually scaling the top part of the Christian summit, and this is what we're going to call endurance. Endurance to finish the course. This is the difference between just simply running a race and finishing a race. You guys have heard of the guy Usain Bolt, right? He is an Olympian. He is a record setter. Usain Bolt has been called the fastest man in the world. But Usain Bolt is so fast, right? It's kind of like the old tortoise and the hare. If Usain Bolt started off a race, he might start off way ahead of the pack. But if Usain Bolt, before he actually reached the end, walked off the race, does he get any reward at all? No, he doesn't every runner excuse me every runner every adventurer knows what it's like to actually complete the course and this is where we're going to call the final attack because this is where a lot of people find weakness at the end it's hard it's tiring it's lonely you've been doing this a long time now and you consider can i go any further and this happens all the time in mount everest you get to the top you can see the peak But it gets tiring, and you are winded, and you don't have the oxygen you had before. And do you remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9, verses 24 to 27? Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. He says, I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. He told Timothy at the end of his life, Timothy, I fought the good fight, I finished the race, I've kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but also to those who have loved his appearing. The last camp, the last thing we get to before the summit is endurance. And the devil often tells us in this final attack, you can't go any further. You're not going to make it. You've come this far, but you're not going to get to the top. You might as well quit. You might as well go back and get something from the world. You're not going to make it to the end. And many mountain climbers know what this is like, this mental battle they have to overcome to get to the final summit. And in the Christian life, I've still, I still—I have consider myself young in the faith still, but I've heard from many that as they get older, you get weaker, you get tired, things get hard. And that's when the devil sort of seizes his opportunity for one last attack to say, maybe now I can get him. Because if you start a race and don't finish the race, it doesn't matter. It's all moot. It's all meaningless. And that's why we have to learn endurance along the way. Endurance. When it gets hard. When it gets difficult. When the church comes together and everything, the honeymoon period is off. Maybe like after this year, maybe that's happening for Wyoming Valley Church. Maybe at the beginning it was a new pastor, a new direction. And now it's just church. Now it's just together time. Now it's just coming together and helping one another. Are we willing to go forward still, church? Are we willing to help each other still in this journey? Are we willing to endure now and go further than we can before? If we can learn endurance, we can come to what's called the summit. The summit. There is a summit in Everest. I'm going to read the description of this. It says, finally, the hour has come. There in the distance, we can see a worm of light slowly moving up a dark wall. It's climbers head torch is flickering in the dark. It's completely silent. Nobody talks. If you do, you whisper, it's absolutely terrifying, and you climb and climb, awaiting the first ray of dawn. It's desperately cold. It's steep and it parts very icy. The ice acts and the crampons barely cut into the ice. You kick your feet to beat the oncoming frostbite. You are at the balcony having a short rest, changing to a new oxygen bottle. A ridge lay ahead or just above you, not far at all, is the south summit. You begin to enjoy the view and the possibility of success. Finally, you step up onto the small plateau of the south summit, and there, just around the corner, is the Everest summit itself. You've watched it so many times from the distance, and suddenly so strangely close. Just right there, only 95 meters, or 300 feet away. You can almost touch the white tail of snow. Then you reach another white edge, but this time it doesn't continue. Behind it, there, is instead a slope down. You are peeking down at the north side of Everest. You have reached the summit of Mount Everest, friend. What that must be like, I can't imagine, to actually make it to the top of Mount Everest, to take a selfie up there and say, I made it, I'm at the top. It's all been worth it. And here in the Christian life, we have a summit too. And our summit, like I said before, is called Fully Like and Fully Pleasing to Christ. I don't think this will happen until the end of our journey, until Christ comes back, or until we pass from this earth I don't think any single Christian can say today, I've reached the summit, myself included. I think we're all journeying somewhere along the path to the summit. But I know in Scripture there have been countless who have made it. Countless people who have reached the summit and are now reaping the eternal rewards of doing so. And now they're fully mature in Christ to God's glory. And they would say to us confidently, boldly today, it's worth it all it's worth it all. I'm at the summit. I will never leave the summit. Unlike Mount Everest, you've got to come down, right? Once you get to the top of Mount Everest, they say you can spend like 20, 30 minutes up there at best. And then you've got to journey down. And unfortunately, a lot of people, when they come down, don't make it. They get to the top, and that's the last part of their life. They don't actually make it down from the mountain. But when we scale to the summit of Christianity, we're there for the rest of eternity. And we will say, just like the countless saints before us, it's worth it all there's no more sin, there's no more struggle, there's no more warfare, there's no more pain. If we have faith in Christ, if we weather the perversions of the devil, if we discipline ourselves, if we learn to obey the commandments of God, and if we utilize the church and endure to the end, we will reach the summit. And I want to end on this thing here. In Mount Everest, you might have people there, you might not have people there. You might live, you might die. In the Christian life, we have the crux of the journey, which I'm going to call the motivation, the power, the tools, and the discipline, and the hidden push. And you know who it all comes from? The Lord Jesus himself. Along the way of our summit climb to the summit of Christianity, the Lord Jesus is there every step of the way. He's motivating us. He's empowering us. He's giving us the tools. He's disciplining us if we fall off the path. He is the hidden push to say, go further. Go beyond. And he is going to get us there. Amen? If we will discipline ourselves, if we will know the right things, and if we will strive with every part of us to get there, never will we fall short. Christ is the hidden push. If we look to and focus upon Christ daily, constantly, I want to tell you today, we are going to reach the summit of Christianity. We are going to be the church. Because as much of a role as we have in the struggle to get to the summit of Christianity, Christ Jesus is the one who truly gets us there. And we will most certainly cast our crowns before him. Because we will know when we reach the summit of Christianity, enter the kingdom of God, I didn't do this without you, Lord. I couldn't have done this without you, Lord. Paul says in Colossians 1 Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And listen to this next part For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Isn't that awesome? Tell that to the devil. I fight with Christ's power. I fight with his help. He is near me. He is helping me. He is the one sustaining me, devil. This is not upon me alone. If it was on me alone, I wouldn't make it to the top. I wouldn't. I'm not smart enough. I'm not strong enough. I don't have the endurance. But if I powerfully struggle with Christ's energy and Christ's power, we will get there. We will Be mature in Christ. So, where do we go from here? I don't know where you are along this journey. Have you been born again? Have you repented of your sins and turned to Christ? If not, you're not yet at base camp. And that's step one for you. You can't go to step two until you repent and turn to Jesus. But if you want to do that today, you can. You could start your journey today. Have you come to base camp yet? Number two, have you weathered the first initial attack of Satan to entice you back to the world? Do you need to go forward beyond the honeymoon period and say, I'm still yours, Lord, whatever it takes, Lord? Do you now understand for the first time what the church is and what your goal is as Christ's church? Over these past five weeks, we've labored to show you what the church is. Are you now clear-headed in your direction to be fully pleasing to Christ? And are you willing to go forward and fight off the perversions of the devil? Step four, have you begun to discipline yourself daily for the journey ahead? Have you done that? Are you doing that now? Are you disciplining yourself? Not to just come for an hour a week for church, but every single day say to the Lord, I'm yours. I need you. Show me. Teach me. Guide me. Step five, have you learned the commandments of God and have begun obeying them in in every area of your life? Because the discipline, once again, is a means to an end, and that end is obedience. Step six, have you committed to and are striving to unify with this church? That's so important. We don't teach this in vain. We don't teach this just because we had to have something to say for the last five weeks. We teach this because it's crucial. Have you begun investing in unifying with this church because it is the catalyst to climbing the summit? And step seven, are you fighting to endure to the end of the journey and reach the summit of Christianity? And I will say this confidently, every one of us is somewhere along that journey. And we all have another step to take, don't we? All of us, myself included. Where are you in the journey? Are you in the journey? Do you see the worth? Do you see the value? Do you see the power of Christ? Can you go to the summit of Christianity? Jesus, thankfully, climbed the mountain before us. He went first. He went and he goes before us and he says to us, I've been there every step of the way. I can help you. I know what the pain is like. I know what the endurance is like. I know what the nitty gritty is like. I know what it means to cast off things and go the way over and over. Jesus is worthy of the reward of reaching the summit of Christianity, isn't he? Don't we want to get to the end and say to the Lord, Lord, it was all for you because of what you've done for me. We learned what the church, we learned why the church, we learned who the church, we learned how the church. Will each one of us now be the church? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this passage, for this truth today that we've learned. Father, we know that this is a high mountain. It's it's on purpose. Father, we are the ones who have sinned, we are the ones who have broken your law and you are the one that has sent your son to redeem us to bring us back to give us an opportunity to be with you, Father, not just to be with you but to do your work, to be a part of your church, to be a part of the best institution ever, and I ask that you would all that you would inspire us all, Father, to go another step in this journey. Show us the goal, show us the reward, inspire us with the power And the tools that you will give us along the way inspire us by the fact that Jesus is gone before us and he's waiting for us on the other side. Father, pray that we would learn how important this step is. That we would scale to the summit of Christianity. That we would get to the other side and give all glory to you for it. We thank you for Jesus for making this possible. It's in his name we pray. Amen.